be seated. Amen. Good indeed. Take your Bibles this morning. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter number 9. In the first hour, we had a baptism and a couple joined the church. Trampas and Lee Offit joined the church this morning. Lee got baptized, followed the Lord in believers' baptism, and we're grateful for that. That's the only burden of two services is to make sure people in the second know what goes on in the first, and people in the first know goes, knows what goes on in the second. But you know, you can solve all that problem. Just come on Sunday night, and you'll get to meet everybody. Uh, until everybody comes on Sunday night, and we have to do two Sunday nights. I do not know what we will do when we get to that day, but praise the Lord if that day ever comes. So that's a wonderful thing. Hebrews chapter 9 is where we are this morning, studying our superior Savior. Last week we saw our superior Savior in His pattern. This morning, here in chapter 9, we will see our superior Savior in His purification. What He does for us and what He does in redeeming us how we are pure or purified in Him. Hebrews chapter number 9, look with me in verse number 19. We'll read down to verse 24, pray. And the introduction will be short today because the preaching will be long today. I promise to get you out of here at a decent hour, but it shouldn't take us a whole hour. Let's read the verses together this morning and we'll jump in. The Bible says in verse number 19, 4, When Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and of goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the testament which God hath enjoined, or that word enjoined means commanded or commissioned, given unto you. Moreover, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry, and almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without the shedding of blood is no remission. It is therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Father, help us this morning as we turn our attention to the truth of Hebrews 9. Oh, the cleansing that we receive in Christ. How far superior it is, Lord, to what Israel had, to what the law could do. The law was good, we're told. But it could not save us. It could not bring us into a relationship with Christ. It could not itself purify us. Annually, their sins could be atoned for, but it could not purge their conscience, for it could not purge their sin. Christ does. And for that, we're glad. Father, this morning, as we look at your word, may we understand what the old had in its ordinances, and what the new has in its offering. Bless us, I pray, in this hour, in Jesus' name. Amen. The purifying of God is seen in the sacrifice that Christ offered. He shed His own blood for your sins on the cross of Calvary. Last week, we studied the pattern of the tabernacle and the sacrifices of the Old Testament. What they were, shadows, figures, types, pictures, looking forward to what Christ Himself would become. 
we noted that Christ was superior and is superior to all that the Old Testament gave to us. It is here in Hebrews 9 that we find the superior nature of Christ's purifying offering for us. To understand this, the writer shows us first in our outline the powerless ordinances. The ordinances of God that are given in the Old Testament had a purpose, but friend, they didn't really have much power. They were powerless. Now, we might look at that and say, well, pastor, I think they were pretty good. Well, listen, you're not living in them anymore. So they served their purpose because a greater power than them came along and that superior person was the Lord Jesus Christ. He could purify us where the law could not. The ordinances of the Old Testament were effective in their day and for their purpose, but the writer is telling us that that day has passed. In fact, he said it this way in Hebrews 7 and verse 25, just a couple pages back in your Bible. He says, Wherefore he, that's Jesus Christ, is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by Him, by Jesus Christ. Seeing He, Jesus Christ, ever liveth to make intercession for them. He is the greater person, thus He is the greater power, thus He has the greater purification for us than the law ever could. The law could only tell you how bad you were. It couldn't help you be a better person. It couldn't reform you. We're going to find that word in this chapter this morning. He couldn't redeem you. We're going to find that word in this chapter this morning. Because Christ is the better purification for those who want to know Almighty God. We could say it this way. God has delivered His Son. He no longer deals in shadows. The death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ shows the true powerlessness of the ordinances of the Old Testament. He shows us, letter A, that they are inferior, and they were inferior. Read verses 1 through 5 with me this morning as we walk our way through Hebrews chapter 9. The Bible says, Then verily the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. That phrase right there at the end of verse 1 is going to be absolutely important for us to understand the inferior nature of those ordinances. He goes on and says, For there was a tabernacle made, the first, wherein was the candlestick, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all. That means the second separation within the actual tabernacle structure. Verse 4, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna and Aaron's rod that budded and the tables of the covenant. And over it, the cherubims of glory shed shadowing or covering the mercy seat, of which we cannot now speak particularly. In other words, none of them that were reading this, unless the high priest was reading this, had ever seen that. It was gone. No one could speak particularly about it because no one could see it in actuality anymore. The phrase that is important to us is at the end of verse number one, and that is a worldly sanctuary. God gave Moses the pattern from heaven, but Moses built the first tabernacle on earth and of earthly materials. The sanctuary was, yes, divinely appointed, and the services carried out in them were under God's direction. Still, everything about it was earthly, for it was of the earth. The first that is mentioned in verses 2 and verse 6 refer to the first section of that tabernacle that you would come to. That is the holy place. 
The second uh, tabernacle of verse 7 is not a separate tabernacle, but rather the second division of that tabernacle called the Holy of Holies. Here's a picture of it so that you can see what it would look like if you were an Israelite. If you were encamped on one of the four sides of this tabernacle, this is how when they came to camp, when the cloud or a, 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 a pillar of cloud or the pillar of fire stopped, that's where they would stop and establish the tabernacle there so that it would sit above the holiest of all. The brazen altar and the laver stood in the outer court of this tabernacle. The first veil in verse number three hung between this outer court and the holy place. In the holy place stood the candlestick and the table of bread and the incense altar. Behind the second veil was the holy of all, or the holy of holies, into which the high priest could go, and then only on the day of atonement. And we'll see this much later in our message in Leviticus 16. In the holy of holies stood the Ark of the Covenant. All these things pointed themselves towards Christ. They were shadows of a greater spiritual reality that God would give to us and that we have today in Jesus Christ. This is the purpose of the writing of Hebrews, and in particular, the writing of Hebrews chapter 9. One great commentator, John Phillips, said this of the tabernacle, and I think we have an interior picture of the tabernacle. He said, the tabernacle of Israel was made of three areas. First, there was the outer court surrounded by a linen wall, suspended on brazen pillars. Access was gained through a gate of colored curtains. Inside the gate was the great brazen altar, behind which stood the brazen laver. Then came the tabernacle itself, covered with four layers of draperies and skins of animals. It was made of boards overlaid with gold and was entered by way of a door made of drapes. Tabernacle was divided into two compartments by a curtained veil. The first compartment was called the holy place and contained a lampstand, a table on which there were placed 12 loaves of showbread, and a golden altar for the burning of incense. Beyond the veil was the holy of all, or the holiest of hol- holy of holies. Here stood the sacred ark of the covenant containing a pot of manna, Aaron's miraculous rod, and the unbroken tables of stone upon which the law was inscribed, as the writer of Hebrews gives to us. Phillips goes on and concludes saying this, The ark was covered with a golden lid called the mercy seat and was overshadowed by golden figures of the cherubim. The writer of Hebrews, interestingly enough, mentions to us a golden censer. What is that telling us? Well, every day in the daily sacrifices and the ministration of them, there was a bronze censer that was used out in the laver in the courtyard. But on the high and holy day, the day of atonement, there would be a golden censer that the high priest would use and carry with him, as we'll see in just a few moments, into that Ark of the Covenant. This is not an error in the writing of Hebrews, as some readers at that time supposed it was. He is speaking not of all of the sacrifices, but of the one sacrifice that was the most important. The one where purification was needed, where the attention and the focus would be placed. It was on that day of atonement that a golden censer would be used by a high priest. He would place a live coal in the censer, walk through the holy place, and directly into the holy of holies, stopping only to place incense on the burning coal. This act would perfume the holy of holies as the blood of the sacrifice was then presented. The writer is not just saying the daily sacrifices are inferior. He is going right to the heart of Judaism. He's going right to the heart of religion that will 
tell us our efforts and our own works can bring us closer to God. He is saying to the Jew that was reading this, he is writing to the reader of Hebrews, he's saying not only are the ordinances of daily sacrifices, but that day's sacrifices are done in Jesus Christ. The golden censer was symbolic, by the way, of what Christ did And what he did for us in John 17, it is called his great high priestly prayer. And he, getting ready to sacrifice himself, prays before his father. And we get to read what that prayer is. It is a wonderful and powerful chapter in the Gospel of John. But in it, we find this golden censer with this incense put in it. And it is perfuming the presence of God. That's what Jesus was preparing for us. By the way, he doesn't only pray for us in John 17. Presently, today, he makes petitions for us in heaven as well. There's an interesting understanding, then, of this tabernacle. There is a powerlessness in it when you understand that it was just a shadow and a type. Look at it from left to right. You have the altar of burnt offering You have the laver. You have the menorah on the left hand as you enter. You have the table of showbread on the right. You have the altar of incense all leading you into the Ark of the Covenant. And the shape is of what? The cross. By the way, when you look at that, you should draw great satisfaction in what Christ did for us. When Jesus hung on the cross in the Gospel of John, He is called the light of the world... And the bread of life. His two hands as they were nailed to that cross. He's demonstrating that he is the light of the world. The menorah. The candlestick. The lampstand. And he is the bread of life that will sustain you. All of these things. From the entrance to the tabernacle. In the outer courtyard. To the holy place. To the holy of holies. All pointed to heaven. And to what Jesus Christ would do. All the priest needed to do was look down, by the way, to be reminded as he stood in that holy of holies that though this was extraordinarily holy ground, all of this was still just resting on a rock or on grass or on dirt or in their case most often, sand. Nothing is said to be done with the ground in and around all of these wonderful structures because it is an earthly tabernacle. It is a worldly sanctuary, the writer of Hebrews tells us. It was inferior because it was a worldly sanctuary. Secondly, in verses 6, 7, and 8, we find the powerlessness of the ordinances is in that God was inaccessible. Read with me verse 6. The Bible goes on, Now when these things were thus ordained, the priest went always into the first tabernacle. Now who went in? The priest that ministered, the ministering priest they would call them. Accomplishing the service of God, but into the second or into the holy of holies went the high priest alone once every year. And by the way, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors or the sins of the people. Verse 8, the Holy Ghost thus signifying or thus proving, thus stamping his approval upon, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest. You know what this is telling us? 
God in his nature cannot be approached by you. He cannot be approached by me. He is holy. He is just. He is righteous. He is pure. And unless we have been purified, we cannot come into his presence. The Old Testament law was powerless. Its ordinances had no ability to bring any person into the presence of Almighty God. The only one who could come in on one day a year was the high priest. And even he had to come in very carefully. Only the priest could minister in the court and in the holy place. Only the high priest could enter the holy of holies. As we shall see, the heavenly sanctuary is open to all of God's people now. Praise the Lord in the coming weeks. We'll study this. The veil between men and God reminded the people that the way into God's presence had not yet been made open. The writer is trying to tell the reader, you have access where they did not. Why would you go back to your own efforts, your own externals, your own religion? The whole process spoke to the limits of knowing, experiencing, and being in a relationship with God. They were not. They had rituals that would make them right, but they did not have a relationship that gave them belonging. Even the priest would die if he merely pulled up the curtain to peek into the Holy of Holies. Boy, that's unfair of God. No, it's just of God, for he will not have sin in his presence. God and the law was inaccessible, except on a single day for a single act from a single person, and only he could experience it in that moment. This was what the Jews were holding on to. It is no different than someone in here trying to say, I think my goodness will get me closer to God. May I say to you, it won't. There's no good thing in you, the Bible says. Your heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And the answer is certainly not you. You and I are often surprised at just how sinful we become, just how sinful we act. So we understand it then, this was what the Jews were holding on to. This was the inexcusable, if you will. All the priests had to do was to look down and be reminded of the holy ground that he was standing on. By the way, the inaccessible nature of God, how terrible that is. The ordinances were powerless in that they were inferior. They were powerless in that God was still inaccessible to them. And finally, in letter C, we find that they were ineffective in verses 9 and 10. They were ineffective. Which was a figure for the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could... Not make him that did the service perfect. It didn't do the trick. As pertaining to the conscience. Oh, it made him righteous on the outside. It satisfied or assuaged God's wrath for that year until the next day of atonement or until they sinned and had to make another sacrifice. But as a nation from year to year, his wrath upon his people was assuaged, but it did not change them. That's what God desires, a change, a purification of who we are. It was ineffective. We continue to read in verse 10, which stood only in meats and drinks and divers or different washings and carnal, fleshly, weak, temporal ordinances imposed on them until the time, and here's a great word, of reformation. 
The word reformation here could equally be translated regeneration or rebirth or reforming. And so we find the reformation or the reforming of them would come not through the law. They already knew this. They understood this. Day after day, the priests offered the same sacrifices. The blood covered sin, but never washed it away. Nor could the blood of animals change the hearts and consciences of the worshipers. These were carnal ordinances, the writer tells us. That is, ceremonies that dealt with the externals, but not the internals of man. Take your Bibles and turn back with me to Leviticus chapter number 16. Leviticus chapter number 16. I'm going to read a lengthy passage, and I want you to stay with me because we're going to understand the effectiveness of Christ, and we're going to see that in our second point, by first seeing the ineffectiveness of these ordinances, the the lack of power to change us. Oh, they were glorious, and they were purposeful, but they couldn't change us. If you wanted to find the feast that pertained to the Day of Atonement, you could look in Leviticus chapter number 23. But here in verse number 16, we see the process. In verse 1, the Bible says, And the Lord spake unto Moses after the death of two sons of Aaron, when they offered before the Lord and died. Nadab and Abihu died because they offered strange fire to the Lord, the Bible says. And the Lord said unto Moses, Speak unto Aaron thy brother, that he come not at all times into the holy place within the veil, that's the holiest of holies, before the mercy seat which is upon the ark, that he die not, for I will appear in a cloud upon the mercy seat. Thus shall Aaron come into the holy place with a young bullock for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and he shall have the linen breeches upon his flesh. He shall be girded with the linen girdle and with the linen miter shall he be attired. These are holy garments. Therefore shall he wash his flesh in water and so put them on. And he shall take the congregation of the children of Israel, two kids of the goats, for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. And Aaron shall offer his bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make an atonement for himself and for his house. And he shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And Aaron shall cast lots upon the two goats, one lot for the Lord. You could read that to say one lot for the sacrifice unto the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, and Aaron, excuse me, one lot for the Lord, and the other lot for the scapegoat. Verse 9, And Aaron shall bring the goat upon which the Lord's lot fell, that is the scapegoat, and offer him, or excuse me, the sacrifice, and offer him for the sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make an atonement with him and to let him go for a scapegoat into the wilderness." And Aaron shall bring the bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself, and shall make an atonement for himself and for his house, and shall kill the bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself. And he shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from off the altar before the Lord, and his hands full of sweet incense, beaten small, and bring it within the veil. And he shall put the incense upon the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is upon the testimony, that he, that is the high priest Aaron, die not. And he shall take... Of the blood of the bullock, and sprinkle it with his finger upon the mercy seat, eastward and before the mercy seat shall he sprinkle of the blood, and his finger seven times. Then shall he kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people, and bring his blood within the veil, and do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bullock, and sprinkle it upon the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. And he shall make an atonement for the holy place. 
because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions in all their sins. And so shall he do for the tabernacle of the congregation that remaineth among them in the midst of their uncleanness. And there shall be no man in the tabernacle of the congregation when he goeth in to make an atonement in the holy place until he come out and have made an atonement for himself and for his household and for all the congregation of Israel. In other words, he's all by himself in there with God performing this work. Verse 18, he shall go out under the altar that is before the Lord and make an atonement for it, the altar itself, and shall take of the blood of the bullock and of the blood of the goat and put it upon the horns of the altar round about. And he shall sprinkle of the blood upon it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and hallow it from the uncleanness of the children of Israel. And when he hath made an end of reconciling or making right the holy place and of the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. Here comes the scapegoat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands upon the head of the live goat. He's literally transferring. This is the substitutionary atonement when we talk about it. He's transferring on the scapegoat. And confess over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins, putting them upon the head of the goat and shall send him away by the hand of a fit man. You should underline that phrase, a fit man. It has nothing to do with your physical prowess. In the Old Testament, a nondescript man is always a picture of the person of the Holy Spirit of God and His work. It is the Holy Spirit that transfers that sin. It is He in that process of regeneration, reformation, and rebirth that makes sure the sins are remembered no more. It is not by the work of the fit man. It is in the scapegoat and the work of the sacrifice, Jesus Christ. But that fit man leads him off into the wilderness, verse 22, and the goat shall bear upon him all their iniquities unto a land not inhabited, not remembered, not known, the Bible says. And he shall let go the goat in the wilderness. And Aaron shall come into the tabernacle of the congregation and shall put off the linen garments which he put on when he, when he went into the holy place and shall leave them there. And he shall wash his flesh with water in a holy place and put on his garments and come forth and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people and make an atonement for himself and for the people. You say, that doesn't sound powerless, Pastor. It sounds pretty important. It was for them, but not for us. For in that process, we see Jesus Christ. The Jewish culture, the Jewish religion, the Israeli faith, the ordinances of the Old Testament, the law given by Moses and the covenant to Abraham, these were not uh, purposeless. They were intentional by God. But they all led us to the cross of Calvary. For a reason. The Day of Atonement was a day that dealt with sin. The ineffective ordinances left the priest himself unchanged in his conscience, the writer of Hebrews has told us. He's the one that tells us that. Leviticus uh, chapter 16 verses 1 through 10 deal with our natural or our prevalent sin that is in every man, uh, uh, one of mankind. In verses 11 through 14, it deals with a high priest and his personal sin. That is the sins that we nurture and keep to ourselves, that we commit and that we love and that we don't want to confess. In verses 15 through 24, we find the public sins in that instance for Israel as a nation. 
Consider the process then and learn the fullness of what the writer of Leviticus and the writer of Hebrews are trying to teach us. Look at the picture again here of the tabernacle. First, a bullock was selected as a sin offering for the high priest. Then a ram was selected as a burnt offering. The burnt offering was different than the sin offering. At this point of the selection of those two, the high priest would take off his divinely assigned robes and would leave them off until the day's rituals were complete. The Bible says that when Jesus came to this earth, he laid aside his glory. The high priest to this point would have been in full regalia of the Day of Atonement. He would have had all of the jewel encrusted, the crown upon his head. But the Bible says when this begins, he had to take all of them off. What did he put on? The Bible says he put on a linen cloth, linen garment. Linen in the Bible always is a picture of righteousness or of glory, that which God is in his very nature. He would select two goats, which would later be used for atonement for the public sins of Israel. The goats had lots cast to determine which would be the slain offering and which would be the sacrifice, where the transfer of the sins would be upon its head and released out into the unknown. This was all for the sins of the people. In verses 11 through 14 of Leviticus 16, the high priest had to address his own personal sin. It was then that he would take the bullock and he would slay it for his own sin. It's an amazing truth to us to understand that a goat was slain for everybody's sin, but a bull was slain for just the high priest's sin. Now, which is bigger to you? I mean, how many of you have cattle or have been around cattle? Raise your hand. Is a bull bigger than a goat? Much bigger than a goat. And if you sacrifice it by splaying it from all the way stem to stern and let its blood run out, there's going to be a whole lot more blood out of that bullock than there is out of that goat. The picture is your personal sin is what makes you repugnant to God. It is your personal sin that you must confess to receive salvation. The offering of the sacrifice is upon the goat, but you must understand the weight of your own sin. You must understand what sin does and how it separates you from God. The high priest would understand this. Sin isn't a humanity problem. It's a personal problem this is teaching us. And until we recognize the size and the scope of our own sin, we will not fully understand salvation. It was now in the process that the high priest would take the golden censer, place in it the burning coal, take this incense in his hand, carry the bowl of blood or the bullock's blood into the holy of holies. And in that holy place, in the tabernacle, alone by himself, we begin the process of offering for sin. In this condition, in the sobriety of the moment, In the silence of that hour, in the timidity of his personal nature, the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies. Here, he would glimpse the Shekinah glory of God. God in his person. God in his nature. Glorious. Radiant. Splendid beyond imagination. As the high priest entered, he put the incense upon the live coal, and the aromatic cloud would fill that tiny room. He would dip his finger into the bowl and sprinkle the blood on and before the mercy seat seven times, we read in Leviticus 17, telling us of the complete picture of sacrifice. Hebrews says, had he entered without blood, he would have died there and then. There's much more that I would love to say about 
the scapegoat, the sacrificial goat, and even that fit man who is the Holy Spirit of God. For this morning, understand that it was in this moment, the Holy of Holies, in that place, that every high priest would recognize both his inferiority and the ineffectiveness of all of these rituals. No high priest walked in there with blood and with smoke and incense and thought, well, this is going to get me closer to God. He would know in that very moment, these were just rituals. This isn't reality. I mean, this glowing Shekinah glory on this mercy seat, the blood sprinkled and the smoke filling room, that gets me closer to him. He would know. He would know, no. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is telling us. They knew it didn't change them in the inner man. They just knew in the inner man, they wanted to do what was right in the outer man. Because the rituals called for that. His own conscience told him that his sin was merely, excuse me, that this was merely a shadow. And that his heart was still deceitful and desperately wicked like every single person outside of that tabernacle. The writer of Hebrews, back in Hebrews chapter 9, tells us the Holy Ghost established, he signified this pattern. But Jesus Christ enabled the purification of the pattern. That Christ was come was the point of the whole of the ordinances. They were wholly powerless to save you. Your works, by the way, are no different than what the Jews or the Hebrews of Judaism believed. If I just do this, I'll be all right with God. Your works have never saved you and they never will. The ordinances were grand and no doubt performed in a glorious and intentional fashion, but they could not purify They could only symbolize an act that must be completed. The powerless ordinances showed the way to the true purifying offering, number two in our notes. That's what 11 through 28 is going to teach us. It is a redemptive offering that purifies. There was nothing redemptive in the bull, in the goat, or in the ram. Nothing redemptive in them. But they and their types showed what redemption would look like. The shedding of blood. We find in the purifying offering first, or letter A, Christ's offering is eternal in verses 11 and 12. We keep reading. But Christ being come and high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once under the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. We've studied that Christ is superior in his person as our high priest in the order of Melchizedek and that he has a superior ministry purpose in his coming. He ministers in a greater, the writer here tells us in verse 11, stronger we might say, and more complete or perfect is the word he uses, tabernacle. That tabernacle is not made with hands. Now, we need to understand the end of verse 11. When it says it is not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building. What the writer is saying here is it's not something that can be fabricated. It's not something that can be earned or done. In fact, he goes so far, the word building that is used here can be translated equally so into into this. It is not of this creation. Whoa. Wait a second, that brings a whole new meaning to building. What he literally is saying is there's nothing in this created universe, nothing that could help you in any composite way or any material way to help you get to heaven. It is not of this creation. 
Literally, the offering of His blood in the Holy of Holies in that sanctuary was in a heavenly realm, in an existence, and literally in a substance that we cannot even fathom. Kind of makes you feel insignificant at that point, doesn't it? Well, it shouldn't, because if you've asked Jesus Christ to save you, His blood was effectively used on your half there. It is the eternal redemption. Man and rituals, he's saying, cannot duplicate Christ's ministry because it is beyond our realm of existence and substance. In verse 12, he says, The high priest took another creature's blood into the Holy of Holies, but Jesus takes his own blood into the presence of God the Father and presents it there once for all, as we sung this morning in that wonderful old hymn. By that and that alone, we have an eternal redemption. By the way, this is why the writer of Hebrews is writing to a specific audience. For you and I, it is an everlasting redemption. We have a beginning, but God doesn't. Literally, God has always known that when He created mankind, that mankind of His free will would depart and that Jesus Christ would die for the sins of mankind. Thus, the redemption predates when He died on the cross. It just was foreshadowed and looked to until Jesus died on the cross. That's why He calls it an eternal redemption. So those of the Old Testament, as they practiced all of those externals, they could look forward to the cross. Did they know Jesus would die on the cross? No. But as that priest started at that left end of that picture, and he walked to the first of the altar, and to the second of the laver, and then into the holy place, and on the left was the candlestick, on the right was the showbread, and, on the front, and just in front of him was the altar of incense, and beyond that the veil, and on that one day that high priest would enter into that place. When he did that, he was completing the work of the cross. And thus it is an eternal redemption. The old ordinance could, ordinances could bring temporary remission, he's arguing here in Hebrews chapter 9, because they were faithfully executed in their type of Christ. And as a type of Christ, they would accomplish his earthly ministry when he actually did die in fulfilling them. Thus, it is an eternal redemption. He's not saying to these Jews, the old ways were dumb and pointless. He's saying to them, they had their purpose, but they're done. When Jesus cried, it is finished, it's why the temple veil was rent from top to bottom. Not from bottom to top. Man didn't rent it. God did from top to bottom. He says, we don't need this separation anymore. Christ's purifying offering is eternal. The ransom for sin was paid, not by a creature, but by the Creator. That's what He's telling us. But letter B, Christ's offering is also effective. In verse number 13, the Bible says, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctify it to the purifying of the flesh, and the answer is it does. The word if there has this connotation of since, for since it does these things. How much more, verse 14, shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, Purge your what? Not your conduct, (laughs) but your conscience. From dead works to serve the living God. It is the sacrifice of Christ that purges our conscience from dead works. This is 
the effectiveness of it. The effect of Christ's sacrifice is not just from the penalty of sin, but also of the power to serve the living God in righteousness. This is our eternal inheritance. If we keep reading in verse 15, he says, And for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of what? Eternal inheritance. Do you realize that God in the garden wanted mankind to have a personal relationship with Him and serve Him forever? That is our internal inheritance. But until Jesus Christ died, was buried, and then rose again, the penalty of sin and the power over sin was not ours. But in Christ, we have an eternal inheritance once again. These passages are rich. They're wonderful. They're useful for us in our daily living. To serve the living God is the point. You cannot serve the living God dead in your trespasses and sins. You must be born again. You must put your faith in Jesus Christ alone. You must put aside all hope that your efforts, your works, your ideas, your ambitions will lead you to heaven. Your thoughts of who God is. You must accept Christ and Christ alone is your payment for sin. Now, we won't take time this morning. In verses 16 through 23, he talks about last wills and testaments. Exciting things if you're a lawyer. For the rest of us, not so much. I said in the early hour, when Jessica and I started the church, we were renting a house, really didn't have that much money, and we're living off of savings. And so when we had Drew, we established a will. But effectively, it says, you get nothing. Right? As life has gone on, lo, these 13 and a half years or 14 years, we've been able to save and be careful. And so now he gets just a little bit more than nothing. And he's had two other brothers, so it effectively might work out to nothing by the time it goes through probate. But for them to get anything in the will and testament, guess who has to die? The one that testated it, the one that signed it, the one that gave it. And so we find what he talks about, and I'm summarizing verses 16 through 23. Jesus, God, established in creation and in the covenants and in the law, ultimately, how they should behave and what sin did. But in dying for sin, he ends that testament. And through his resurrection, his regeneration, his own rebirth, as he is resurrected back to life, he then establishes a new testament. Do you know when that testament ends? Neither do I. According to the Bible, never. We are living in His grace upon the foundation of what He did on the cross of Calvary. And you and I who are in this room will live in that for the rest of eternity. So we find the effectiveness of it. We come finally then, not just the eternality or the effectiveness, we find Christ's offering, it is entire. To close the chapter, He gives us in verses 25 through 28, The complete work of Christ. The sacrifices in the temple, year after year, never got old. Same thing, over and over again, just sacrifice, sacrifice, daily sacrifices, things that people would have to come and bring because they sinned. Then that day of atonement, the the solemn nature of that day, it was every year and practically every day throughout the month. There were sacrifices. There was blood. There was something on the altar. There was a putrid smell. There was the smell of death because that's what sin was. It is the sacrifice of Christ that purges our conscience, we're told. 
in verse 14. And here in verse 25, we're told the priest's work was never done, nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entereth into the holy places every year with blood of others. Jesus didn't have to do that. He's in the presence of God now. How do we know this? He goes on in verse 26. For then must he have often suffered since the foundation of the world. But now... Once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin. How did he finish sin? That phrase put away literally means to finish it. How did he finish it? Well, he died on the cross of Calvary by the sacrifice of of himself. And as it is appointed unto man once to die, but after this the judgment, so Christ once offered to bear the sins of many. And unto them that look for him, Shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation? The priest's work was never done, but Christ's is. Jesus' death was final in its payment for sin. He finished sin on the cross. It is a gift for you to take by faith. It is a wonderful thing to know that once in the end of the world, Christ suffered and died. And in doing so, he put away sin. And may I note to you in verse 27, implicitly given in that verse, is either you accept that death for your sins or you die for your sins. That's what verse 27 tells us. Look at it and read it with me. And it is appointed unto man once to die, but after this, the judgment. When you stand before Almighty God, He will literally ask you, Who paid for your sins? If you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ on this earth, in this life, your answer is, Jesus did. The old hymn that we sing often in invitation, Jesus paid it all, all to Him I owe. Sin certainly creates a terrible and horrific stain, but Jesus will wash it white as snow. The question in closing for you this morning is, have you been purified by the blood of Jesus Christ? That's the implication of verses 27 and 28. It is interesting as well in verses 24 through 28, those last five verses of this chapter, the word appeared occurs three times. In verse 24, He appears in heaven right now for us. If you've put your faith and trust in Him, He is in heaven before His Father saying, I paid for Kyle's sins. If you've asked Jesus to save you, He's paid for your sins. In verse number 26, it says there, He appeared once to put away sin, to finish it on the cross of Calvary. In verse number 28, it says He will appear Again, to offer the fullness of salvation. You say, what is the fullness of salvation? Well, here's what it says at the end of 28. And unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. That is a statement. Without sin unto salvation is a statement of you and I in our glorified state. Won't it be nice not to have to deal with sin anymore? Well, pastor, I know you're high and holy and you probably don't deal with sin. Come to our house any given Tuesday afternoon, or Thursday, or Friday, or Saturday morning, or Sunday between church. Well, you're a terrible sinner. I'm not any worse or better than you. I'm just a sinner saved by grace. And I long for and look to the day when I don't have to worry about sin anymore. That will not be until He appears that time for us. 
The Old Testament saint has his sins annually atoned for in the goat. Transferred to its head, taken out into the wilderness. The New Testament believer has the vicarious substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ, who forever has removed sin's penalty. And if you will let him this morning, believer, he also will help remove sin's power and its hold in your very life. Father, help us, I pray, as we